Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 55. And today we are joined by Heather Mason. Heather is a former prisoner up in Canada and a founding member of COSBAR, the Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights Group. And they do a lot of work with preserving, you know, women's-based rights up in Canada. Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. Yes. Um, before we start, just want to remind everybody to like, subscribe. You remembered. I did. Um, subscribe, comment, do all the things, share it on your social media. It really helps it's, us grow. We just does. hit, what, 420-ish? We hit 420 subs. today. Yeah. So that's a big, big <laughs> um, we also, we just recently got our first donations from people, people we've never even like met total strangers, which is crazy. So if those people are watching right now, thank um, you so much. Thank you. We really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to take Josh's advice and I'm going to ask people if you want to donate to us, there please, are, please do. There's PayPal, Venmo, and uh, what's the other one? Cash app links in the description. We take crypto too. If <laughs> also, Cosbar takes donations yes. to the website. Yeah. So and, again, uh, thank you so much, Heather, for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you about what's happening up in Canada. Um, do you just want to give us like a little introduction, your experiences, and how you came to be associated with uh, the Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights Group? Yeah, so I actually was a drug addict. I was addicted to fentanyl. I was in and out of jail. And then I ended up getting a prison sentence and going to federal. Um, I didn't really understand anything that was going on. My whole world was consumed by drugs. Um, but then I got out and I was in the halfway house and someone randomly messaged me wanting to know about trans women in prisons. And I was like, oh my God, this person's psycho, I'm not going to answer them. And then I ended up going to a conference and seeing some things happening. And I started speaking out about my experience in prison. And I actually wrote back the woman who had messaged me. Um, and then I ended up going to the Megan Murphy event that was in Toronto in October 2019. And she actually mentioned my name at that event. And then someone reached out to me and asked me if I would like to start an organization, which was Cosbar. I said yes, and I've been there since. That's great. Wow. Wow. Um, we, I love Megan Murphy. We met her at a, uh, it's like a little women's gathering in uh, New York a couple of years ago. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Caitlin was me and my sister went and we, we had a whole conversation. It was a bunch, it's very similar. It was a bunch of women speakers talking about the issue of trans women sort of encroaching upon women's spaces and the reaction to that. And I had a couple of different speakers, but yeah, she, that's what she was also, in case people don't know, Megan Murphy was one of the first people to be banned off of Twitter because she refused to seed the ground. She said, you know, and I think when she did, it was actually something very innocuous. She said something like men aren't women though. And that was enough because so many activists had, ire for her that they mass reported her and she's been kicked off twitter ever since yeah um so what's happening up in canada it seems like ever since they've passed 
that C16 bill, which is, uh, that was back in what, 2017? 2016. And 2016? That, that was how Jordan Peterson came to. Okay, but let's not wander off. Yeah, Peterson. but that, that was, I think, what really brought a bigger mass awareness to the topic was the controversy that he got embroiled in for speaking out against the bill and then kind of outlining what the bill actually says and why he felt it was like a slippery slope. Yes. Um, yeah, they introduced it in 2016, and then it passed in 2017. Okay. And so basically what that did was it meant that now men or biological men could self-identify as women and then acquire all of the legal protections uh, afforded to women and even including access to women's spaces, and most concerningly, you know, uh, housing in women's prisons. And that's something that you guys work, I mean, you, I know you've said that you, you protest every, every Sunday, is it? And can you just give us a little, you know, what, what do you guys do and, and what's going on there? So I don't protest every Sunday, but I do protest quite a bit. I kind of take the winter off because I don't really like snow, but we just started up our protests again yesterday um we've done it seven times and we've had two national protests so we had them in multiple cities across canada so we have about 11 16 protests we've done in a year a year today we started one year ago today wow, wow. that's happy great. anniversary yeah um and so i have cause bars position statement pulled up and maybe we'll just go through it yeah, pull it up on screen. I'll share the screen here. So this is the position statement and Cosbar asserts that, I'll just read it for the audio people. Uh, sex as distinct from gender is a material biological reality. There are only two sexes, female and male. There are disorders of sexual development, sometimes referred to as intersex people. They exist, but these people are usually, I mean, they, they either identify as male or female. Uh, humans cannot change your sex. Uh, you, you know, we can, scientific evidence demonstrates that the sex chromosomes within our DNA are present in every one of our cells and are immutable. Uh, this is the point I've made repeatedly, like our current level of technology is such that we actually can't change sex. Uh, gender and identity expression, which is yet to be defined by Canadian law, are culturally based. Uh, and stereotypical degrees of masculinity and femininity. Um, we have all Canadians are free to express and present themselves as they wish. However, the concept of gender identity and expression does not negate the material biological reality of women and girls. Women and girls' sex-based rights to bodily privacy, dignity, fairness, and security are enshrined in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, in which sex is a protected characteristic. Uh, Canadian women's sex-based charter protections are based upon the fact that females have a historically been uh, have historically been and still are disadvantaged and vulnerable due to their stink biological reality. Uh, therefore, women's and girls' sex-based charter rights must be strongly asserted and preserved in public policy and must take precedent over any concept of gender. The inclusion of males in the definition of women under federal and provincial human rights legislation, i.e. gender self-identification, is regressive, unfair, and perilous for Canadian women and girls. Um, yeah, and they go on to define like specific areas like homeless shelters, change rooms, washrooms, rape shelters, prisons, sporting divisions, 
shared rooms at hospitals, uh, you know, academic groups. So this is uh, actually, you guys are not just focusing on, you know, just the issue in prisons, but also like the wider issue of just including biological males in things that are traditionally or historically like female spaces. Yeah. Sports yes. is a big, big controversial subject now, I feel in particular about, you know, in this, this regard. Yeah, we have, uh, what is it, Leah, Leah Thompson? Yeah, Leah Thompson. She's the, the, the Yale, is it Yale? I, I, I can't remember. Somewhere in the, the swimmer, Ivy though. Penn. Penn, Penn. 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 yeah. So you're, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with that situation. Um, yes, I am. And lots of people are actually aware of it. Like that whole situation has woken up a lot of people. I get like a lot of conversations with people now about sports. Even yesterday when we were at the protest and two women were walking by on the pathway, they even brought up sports to me. And I was impressed because most people aren't even paying attention or don't know. So I was able to tell them about prisons and they were like, okay, so this is not just happening in sports, it's happening everywhere. And I was like, exactly. Yeah, it seems to be a relatively, I mean, it's a big problem when it comes to prisons, especially because they are housing uh, biological male sex offenders in women's in women's spaces, which, you know, gives them access to women, which they, you know, as I saw a couple of things that you're mentioning on the website, talking about sexual harassment, sexual assault, physical assault, um, all of these things. And the females that the women that are, that are uh, in prison are, you know, basically having their complaints totally dismissed and they're being labeled, you know, turf or a bigot or a trans misogynist, all these these made up words just so that, you know, their concerns don't have to have any legitimate weight to them. Yeah. It's, yeah. They, they want to pretend these things aren't happening. And when we try to talk about it and say, well, it is happening. There, there are examples of this. Oh, well, you can't say that because if you talk about it, then it's making all trans women look bad. And it's like, you're saying they're all predators, which is not what you guys are saying. You're not saying all trans people are predators, but you are saying that this stuff is happening. Yeah, and I find that they throw those like the name calling and the slurs around as a way to silence and shame. So they're shaming you into silence, right? But that doesn't work with me. Um, I don't care. You can shame me as like as much as you want. Um, I've had so much shame and guilt throughout my life as a drug addict in and out of prison. Literally, these words don't hurt me. So their shaming tactics don't work with me, and it really upsets them. Um, and I just laugh. I think it's yes. funny. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we understand too. And in, in regards to just criticizing the LGBT movement and that stuff as gay men, you know, we get called all types of horrible things, traitors, you know, internalized homophobia and, you know, all of it. And it's the same tactic. They're trying to shame us into compliance. It's like, well, you're gay. How could you not be okay with this stuff? It's like they, they assume we automatically have to agree with it. Yeah. And, and um, it's interesting because I actually have some trans men that come to my prison protests um, that were in. So yesterday, Jake, my friend, um, he was in Grand Valley. He comes to all my protests and everyone calls him a turf and a turf scum and yeah. a terrorist and a transphobe. And it's like, okay. like <laughs> That's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about now that we're on that subject, you know, you, you focus mostly on women and 
women's prisons and the trans women but are there like reverse examples of this of like trans men who are in male prison situations and and encounter say harassment or sexual assault or that sort of thing they have not transferred any females who identify as males to the men's prison. Hmm. There's been one formal and one or two informal requests, but they've been denied due to overriding health and safety concerns because they'll be raped in the men's prison. They can't be kept safe, which wow. is, it's obvious, right? Unless you're going to stick them in segregation, but um, corrections isn't allowed to use segregation. There is a bill passed, Bill uh, C-83, um, because they were overusing segregation, sticking a lot of people with like mental health issues and SEG and not dealing with it. Um, so now they have the structured intervention units, which to me is just a rebranding of segregation. It's the exact same place, um, just a new name. So to me, they still have segregation, but to them, they don't. But that's where they would be put in those structured intervention units if they did win their transfer. So we have about 12 trans men in the women's prisons. Um, and they get along fine with us. Um, there's no issues uh, with them in there. And they're, they're safe. They get along with us. Um, so this policy is actually a one-sided policy that only benefits males with a penis because trans women who have had surgery have been incarcerated with us since at least 1982. So, oh, I didn't even realize it went that far back. Wow. Yeah. So they were previously, they actually had to have bottom surgery in order to be housed in a women's prison. And since the passage of C-16 now, it's basically anybody, you know, they could, they just have to claim that they identify as a woman. And they can still have male genitalia and yet be present in, in a women's facility. Is that correct? Yeah. So before they had, um, believe it was in the commissioner's directive guidelines 800-5 and it was gender dysphoria. So they had to have a diagnosis from um, like doctors and go through, jump through the hoops, et cetera, get the diagnosis. Um, have the surgery, be on the hormones, be living as a woman, like there, there was objectives, like there was an objective test to determine, right? And then actually what a lot of people don't know about this policy is, so Bill C-16 was passed and Corrections was looking at their policy and they were going to change it. Prior, you had to be living outside of prison for one year before you qualified to have your surgery paid for by corrections. And they changed the policy so that you could be living for one year in prison and qualify for the surgery. They released that policy. And then there was a town hall meeting in Kingston, Ontario. And I believe it was a trans woman got up and said, well, what about trans women in prisons and Justin Trudeau was like oh I never thought about that don't worry we'll fix it next thing you know corrections takes their new policy back and then they release another one that is now transfers are based on gender identity or expression and there is an exemption clause it's called the overriding health and safety concerns so they'll look at programming in the institution the mother-child program security, that type. 
So they have been able to deny transfers because like 50% of the transfer requests were from sex offenders. Surprise, surprise. Hmm. So they can deny transfers. But what has happened is this is a temporary policy and they will be issuing a permanent policy. So they were asking for feedback on the directive draft that they sent out in fall of 2020. And then the Canadian Bar Association, Leaf Advocacy and Legal Aid Fund, um, and then the Morgan OJ Foundation, they put out um, letters saying that the policy was rooted in transphobic views and that the transfers should happen without exception. So they want anyone to be able to be transferred and they don't want statistics to record biological sex. So we won't be able to determine how many males are transferring. We won't be able to keep proper stats on sexual assault or violence. And we're not even gonna know are trans women disproportionately incarcerated because we can't even, we won't know anything. We won't know what their needs are, what they're not getting, what they do need because we can't track them. So that's how the policy is right now. The permanent policy is supposed to be released this month. I don't know if they listened and took out the exemption clause or if they kept it in. So that's something we're going to have to wait and see for what they ended up doing. Um, based on your experiences, what do you think that they will end up doing? I think that they'll keep the exemption clause in because... Um, the guards don't agree with this. Like every time I go and protest, they're like, you're awesome. Thanks for being here. Or they're like, tell them about the pregnancies. Like that's how I found out about one of the pregnancies. Like the guards will like come out and they'll like um, pull up their SUV, they'll back it up and then they'll pop the trunk and they'll, they'll sit in the trunk and watch us while we're protesting. Like they don't agree with this. They didn't sign up to deal with these men. They work in a women's prison for a reason because it's less dangerous, less security, less all of this stuff. Um, so they don't agree with this. Same with the female guards. They do not want to strip search sex offenders who are getting hard-ons. They don't want to do it. They shouldn't have to do it. Um, so the, I, the, I don't come across too many guards that are in agreement with this. And then corrections knows that women's prisons are not set up to handle the security risk of these transfers. So myself, I don't think they're going to take it out. But then again, I don't know how powerful these lobbying groups are or how much money they have that are you know, they're throwing to be able to get what they want because that's what's happening. Everything's so political. And if you have money, then you're going to get your way. And they also use a lot of like bullying tactics, right? Um, threatening and like cancel culture. Like that's how Boxing. they operate. Yes, that's exactly how they operate. They're bullies. They're straight up bullies. Yeah, I saw, I can't remember, I can't pull it up now. I'm not sure where it went, but there was a, a letter that was, I think it was addressed to uh, some of these groups. And the letter had spoken about uh, a woman prisoner who had gotten up and, you know, very, you know, gave an impassioned plea 
uh, you know, speaking out about, you know, having these, these biological men transferred into women's prisons and that, you know, she eventually was broken into tears and had to be, you know, sort of like escorted out of the room. And when she was out, they started talking about like the transphobia in the room, <laughs> which, which obviously like they were sort of, you know, call, like labeling her and her opinions as transphobic. When in, in reality, it's not that she has a problem with trans people, it's that she has a problem with men self-identifying as women in order to gain access, especially when we're talking about convicted offenders and people that are having the potential to sexually abuse or physically abuse you know, women in these facilities. Yeah, I think the distinction between the ones who've had the surgery and the ones who haven't is a really important distinction because obviously... You know, a trans woman who has had surgery isn't really going to be capable of um, sexual penetration, obviously. So that immediately kind of reduces most of the risk. But by removing this and just allowing anyone who identifies, I think this is the main issue here, right? Yes. So to touch on that, um, I spoke a little bit about that conference at the beginning. So when I first got out of prison, so I got out in October 2018, and then I went to rehab for three months. And then I was sent to the Elizabeth Fry Society of Toronto's halfway house. And I was there for four months. And while I was there, they used to ask me to speak on panels about my drug addiction and my experience in prison. And I also did their strip searching event. So they used to um, have me speak on behalf of them for a like several, several times. Um, and then they had a national conference. So the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies is called CAPES. And they are, I think of it like an umbrella. So they're at the top of the umbrella and the spokes are the E. Fry Societies. Those are our halfway houses. So they're under CAFE's membership. So whatever CAFE's policies are, they have to adopt them. So CAFE's was having their national conference in June, 2019. And I submitted an application and I won a scholarship for that conference and CAFE's paid for my transportation and my accommodations to Ottawa. I was on parole, um, I went and this woman got up and she spoke about how she was groomed and sexually harassed by a prolific serial pedophile. And I just could not believe that they dismissed her and that nobody was going to say or do anything or help the women. And I just, that was like a turning point in my life. I was like, I cannot sit back and not say anything. And after that conference, that was when I went back into my messages and found the woman who had actually messaged me. And her name's April Halley, and she's from Newfoundland. And she actually was a founding member of Cause Bar, but she kind of stepped back to work on other things. Um, and I had, I messaged her and that's how I ended up speaking out about it. But interestingly enough, there are trans women, for example, Matthew Harks, who has had surgery, um, but he is still a prolific serial pedophile. And he, um, like, he goes after the women who are like developmentally delayed or who appear to look childlike. Um, and there actually was an Indigenous woman, 
so he he was the one that was grooming and harassing the um the woman who got up and spoke she was an indigenous woman extensive history of trauma um abuse all of that and actually that conference sent her on a downward spiral and she actually went back out and started using and getting in trouble with the law again she had no support but there was another woman that i was in with in gbi and she's 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 probably about 15 or 16 in like the head right like she's she's developmentally delayed um she would just walk around the track all the time listening to music and she just she's very nice um and anyways um harks cornered her in the bathroom and told her that if she let him touch her he would stop hurting little girls because he really likes little girls right um and then another time um the women actually locked harks out of their house because we live in houses on medium compound they're like cottages with nine bedrooms two bathrooms kitchen living room dining room laundry room um they locked him out of the house and then he went and told the guards and the guards came and said you need to let him in this house or we're putting bullying in your paperwork and you won't get parole Wow. so he had just sexually assaulted a woman they tried to lock him out and the guards said they were going to put bullying in their paperwork and if you people probably don't know this but um the entire time we're in we have to follow a correctional plan like we have to either go to school we have to go to work we have to take certain programming and then anytime we get in trouble it all goes in our paperwork so when you go up for parole they have this report on you so they're going to look and be like oh you're bullying oh you're not following institutional rules oh your behavior and then you're not getting parole so this is a way to silence women because they're more concerned with getting parole getting out and seeing their kids so they're not going to say or do anything that's going to jeopardize that and i think that's completely wrong so this this harks person did have surgery and had yes penis removed yet was still doing these things i think that's pretty telling in and of itself and and you know one of the things i think the, the website here mentions is you guys sort of uh brought up the idea of like having special facilities for trans people themselves and i I personally think this would also be an interesting solution to the sports dilemma as well as, you know, have leagues for, for trans people. Well, the um, McDonald Laurier Institute in Ottawa, it's a think tank for federal policy. And they just did, um, they released a report. So they spoke to a bunch of people that like professionals in the sport, sports league, um, and they came up with the, what they thought would be best. And that was to have um, women's only, so female only, and then open. Okay. Because it's not going to impact the men. That's Trans women and women aren't going to beat men. And so, you know, um, I think that's that's yeah. fair. Um, yeah, well, but yes. that makes sense. Give, give the option, you know, like if, if women, biological women want to compete, with trans women they should know and they should have the choice to choose to i guess be in an open league that's that's yeah, an interesting idea but to man to just like blur the lines completely and to to take a women's league away because that's what it feels like they're doing and 
But I think for prisons, this is another, it's a similar thing. I think we should do something similar to that. Like, why can't they have special facilities for trans folks? And this would kind of solve a lot of that, a lot of these problems, I think. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest building them a new facility because if you build prisons, you have to find people to fill them. So true. there are, um, the, there's a lot of men's prisons and they have extra room. So they have wings, ranges, pods. So potentially you could take a wing from one of the men's prisons and turn it into a unit that is designed for them. Yeah. And they will be away from the men, but they'll still be able to utilize all the accommodations in the prison. So the gym, um, you know, uh, all of it, the library, programming, anything that they need is going to be there. And then you also are going to be able to protect more people because... This is the biggest issue. They want trans women out of men's prisons because of the male violence, but they're not doing anything to fix the male violence. So they're saying, yes, there's a lot of male violence here. It's dangerous, but we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to pick a select few and transfer them into women's prisons and download 100% of the risk of male violence from men's prisons onto women in women's prisons. Well, what about the trans women who live as women who do not want to transfer to a woman's prison? These ones are typically your homosexual males, right? They like men. They do not want to be incarcerated with women because we're catty, we're emotional, and there's a lot of drama. They don't want to be anywhere near us. So everyone is forgetting about those trans women. Nothing has changed in the men's prison to better their lives and to keep them safer. And on top of that, gay men are at just as much risk of sexual assault in men's prison as trans women. We're not transferring gay men into women's prisons. So what are we doing for them? What are we doing for the young men, the old men, the racialized men, all these other groups that are at risk of male violence? We're just wiping our hands of it. We're not even solving the problem. So I think if we do have the wings, then we're able to keep more people safe than just a few. Yeah, I, I don't see what's so unreasonable about that. You know, I, I, don't, I don't understand. You know, I'm trying to understand, but I feel like the radical types, uh, they don't have, there is no reasoning in their head anymore. It's just you, you're either agreeing with us or you're a turf, you're a transphobe, et cetera. Well, to me, it seems like there's two big problems. It's one on one layer, it's the propaganda layer where people are afraid to speak out <laughs> for fear of labels. Yeah. Um, and the other layer is that at the government level, you know, government moves slow, government is incredibly lazy, they want to do the easiest thing possible in it's order true. to have the uh, you know, to, to make everybody happier or create the appearance of having everybody happy. So the way that they get away with that is instead of delving into the nuance here, instead of you know actually doing the work of protecting the most people by making the more appropriate changes, they're just like, well, we'll just you know review them case by case. We'll put the trans women in the women's prison if we approve them. And then, you know, just kind of like wash our hands of everything yeah. else and not worry about it because it's, it's nuts. And there's also, there's also this, this sort of like, I hate to say it, but there's this like weird sort of stigma associated with people who get locked up and they, you know, in, in America, at least I've seen it, you know, they have this, this weird twisted idea that people deserve 
the punishment that comes with being incarcerated. And that for some, in, in some people's minds, the fact that you end up in jail almost uh, excuses any violence that you experience in jail. And we've seen this historically with in, in, male, in men's prisons, you know, there's this sort of like running gag that, you know, if you get locked up in America, that you're going to get, you know, you're going to be yeah. uh, sodomized. Don't and, drop and, the soap. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like a running gag, but there's not like a no, there's not a lot of serious conversation saying, you know, well, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be tolerating, you know, sexual violence, even in a prison situation, yep. because that's not helping anyone, you know, it's not going to help people from uh that's not going to help people from recidivism from you know offending again and the this other issue is that there's you know a lot of people that end up in prison have a traumatic past they have experience with you know sexual violence they have experience with psychological violence abuse uh from maybe from their parents or just from growing up and there's not a whole lot of consideration there there's just this blanket idea that if you end up in jail you deserved it and that any bad experiences that happen to you there are just part of the experience yeah and it, it not it, to mention people who get like falsely incarcerated and things like that you know who are actually innocent yeah but, that's like even a even a more extreme but I, th I think you know what heather is saying the the ideas that she's that she's bringing up it's it's to protect trans people too you know like if we were to implement some of these ideas it's not just to, to protect the women in women's prisons it's like these policies would also help protect gay men they would help to protect trans people as well and like i said i i don't see it as unreasonable no you know what the issue is it's not about safety it's about validation and that's been quite obvious for a while now especially with the reasoning for the transfer requests only a handful have cited safety as the reason for transferring the rest it's because they want to align with their gender identity but like you were saying before there is no definition to gender identity or expression because there's subjective feelings based in each individual's head there's no objective test to this right and also with your point going with uh, people in prison and punishment, what a lot of people don't understand in Canada is that punishment is not part of Canada's um, carceral system. So we are based on rehabilitation. So we have principles to sentencing and punishment is not one of them. So the punishment is that we are in prison. We are not to be punished while we're in prison. And people don't understand that. They think that um, being in prison isn't the punishment, that we're supposed to be punished while in prison. So they are like, oh yeah, strip search them. Oh yeah, rape them. Oh yeah, you know, because it's like, are you crazy? 80% of the women in prison are in there for navigating poverty and abuse. They're drug addicts, they're prostitutes, they're abused children still you know because they haven't been able to grow up they haven't been able to deal with their trauma like these women do not deserve to be raped by some man and the other thing that a lot of people say too was well how many are um getting raped by the guards so are you telling me because the guards raped them that we should just invite in more men to keep raping them that sounds great yeah. like i don't even want men in women's prisons because yeah the men the guards in there that's enough to deal with. And, the, and CSC covers it up. And like everyone's like, oh, where are the stats? Where are the stats? And it's like, well, CSC doesn't keep proper stats. And in the off, oh, 
Sorry, did you say something? No, I'm just like, you can't get the statistics. They won't yeah. let you have the numbers. Right. Well, they don't really keep it. So uh, the Office of the Correctional Investigator is supposed to be like an oversight for corrections. So if you have issues and complaints, that's who you talk to. So provincially, it's ombudsman, like you send in a blue letter. And the Office of the Correctional Investigator put out the report last year and talked about violence and sexual abuse and like how um, corrections isn't properly recording it or reporting it, whether that's um, prisoner on prisoner, guard on prisoner, etc. So to give you an example of them not reporting or recording it, there was a guard named um, Ricardo. Ricardo's worked there forever. He was um, put on leave because of allegations that he was doing inappropriate things like having sex with the women prisoners. And then he was off for a bit and they let him come back and they let him work in Max and they let him be a primary worker. So each woman gets a primary worker. They get a management case team and your primary worker is the person that approves your visits, um, increases your pay. You have to meet with them monthly to give them a report on what you've been doing. Um, so you meet with them alone, right? So they let him be a primary worker that gave him the opportunity to meet with these women alone. And you know what he was doing? He was bringing in nail polish and cigarettes and exchanging it for sexual favors with the women prisoners. They knew, they let him come back and continue it. And then a decade later, historical charges came. They let this go on for a decade. And this has happened in other women's prisons as well. So no. We don't want the male guards in there. Yes, they are a problem. CSC's own paid government staff cannot be stopped from raping the women. And you think they're going to stop these predators from raping the women? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, hard, it's hard to hear that stuff and not think like there's, there's a cover-up going on here. They're, they're covering it up. Yes, they are. And they got in trouble for it because they're like, hey, how come there's no paperwork to this, <laughs> right? They were thinking that it just never was going to come to light. So there is, they're not reporting it properly. There's no system set up. And um, I just read the draft. They have a draft directive coming out. They're supposed to implement new avenues of reporting and how they're going to provide counseling and support to the women of sexual assaults. Wow. Yeah, and this is also not just a problem in Canada, too. Like, one thing I've noticed is that in California now, they have passed similar policies to C-16, and there was a slew of, you know, self-identifying trans women with sexual assault histories that are trying to transfer now into women's prisons in California. Uh, I have this article from the UK, this person, Karen White, who was uh, admitted, she... She had admitted to uh, sexually assaulting, I think it's four women um, in a female prison in the UK. So this is definitely a pattern that we're seeing. These, these predators will use trans identities as a shield. And this is something that I've noticed a lot uh, is that they, they use these LGBTQ identities 
in order to deflect criticism, in order to deflect actual critiques of their behavior, which is the problem. It's not that their identity, but they use the identity as a shield to conceal their predatory aspects. And, you know, uh, th this is not just a problem with, with trans women, but also with, with LGBTQ, with gay people. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a big problem and nobody likes to talk about it because they're afraid of being labeled a bigot or, you know, a misogynist or, you know, something homophobe. I think something I think is worth highlighting here, too, is that this stuff is actually harming trans people as well, because the more of these incidents that happen, it's just going to further um, spread this idea, the that, stigma, the stigma that all trans people are like this when, you know, we know that there are plenty of people who aren't right they're, They just yes. want to live as the other and they just want to be left alone. And the more of these incidents keep happening, they're going to get lumped in with folks like this. And I think if anything, it's, it's more important for trans people now to also be calling this stuff out and addressing it and saying, well, no, those people don't represent all of us, you know, and it's hurting them by not doing that. They're scared. So I have trans friends that I care about, that I respect, that I hang out with, that I talk to, and they won't speak up about it but they do support me um they're scared of being kicked out of the lgbtq community they're scared of not having anybody and yeah. that that's the problem because they will be they'll totally be disowned if they speak out well if any of them are listening right now we will talk to you we'll we'll listen to you you know and if you want a platform and you want to speak out as a trans person and you want to say oh, we're not okay with this either you know this is being bringing a bad name to all of us you know, you, you will have support. You'll have a support group. Well, the, problem, cast you the, out. the problem, too, is that social ostracization is a very powerful pressure and a very powerful fear. Yeah. Because And it goes back to our period of evolutionary adaptation. Humans are inherently tribal. And when we were, you know, coming up as small tribes, one of the worst things that could happen, it was almost like a death sentence. Exile. Kicked out of the group. Because, you know, it's much harder for an individual to survive on their own than it is within, you know, a tribe-like structure. And so we have this ancient DNA, like, buried into the base of our brains, which says, you know, like, getting kicked out of your group or being socially ostracized is, is equivalent to being sentenced to death. And so it brings up a lot of, you know, hardwired anxiety, and it prevents people from speaking out, and it's... It's something that we don't consciously realize because not a lot of people understand evolutionary biology. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and uh, people are always searching for a sense of belonging too, right? So a lot of the people that are in prison, so um, they, they were addicted to drugs. And our issues with drugs are like abandonment, a sense of belonging, all of those types of things, right? And then they get out and like they find that with like the LGBTQ community and like they don't want to lose that sense of belonging. They don't want to feel abandonment again, right? Because yeah. then th that just leads down to going back to drugs and, you know, jails, institutions or death. I don't know where I heard this before. It was years ago. Someone has said this to me, but they described um, heroin as sort of feeling, I'm just using heroin as one example here, but as like feeling like love. And I thought that was like, like a, like an embrace. Mm -hmm. And I thought that, that says everything right there, you know, of why so many people do turn to drugs is they're, they're lacking love in their lives. A lot of them at least. Yeah. Um, 
Lacking love, definitely. Um, so in May, I'll be five years off of my DOC, so um, fentanyl. And I, I did crystal meth and molly and crack and cocaine and Xanax and lorazepam, clorazepam. Like I did it all, right? Like I was taking every single drug I possibly could, hoping that I wouldn't wake up because of like self-loathing. Um, I just hated myself, right? Um, Congratulations, that, by the way, it's a huge accomplishment for five years. Thank you. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't love myself and I didn't feel like anyone loved me. Um, I will not return to using drugs to fill those voids, but I do love fentanyl. Like I love it. You know what I mean? And that's why I won't do it because you know, that I just love yourself, you know, exactly. Yeah. It's a love hate relationship, but yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very disturbing issue, especially when you see like people like Justin Trudeau or other people in government who have no experience of what it's like to be in, uh, to be in, in prison, to be locked up, and they just sort of flippantly accept whatever the, you know, the trendy thing or whatever the, the polls indicate without actually doing, you know, the hard work of diving into the research of speaking with victims. They don't care. Well, yeah. yeah Trudeau doesn't care. I'm convinced he's a psychopath. <laughs> That's another issue. Yeah. We are not Justin Trudeau fans. <laughs> yeah, we are not. That's for sure. Neither am I. I, I can't stand him. He does not care. He's arrogant. Um, and he just like, yeah. I have a lot I could say about him, but he needs to go. Authoritarian <laughs> prick. That's who it is. Yeah. Yeah, we have... Uh, oh, go ahead. Um, I was going to say that... Um, so Canada doesn't actually have any statistics on trans prisoners in Canada. They use the statistics from the United States, which just blows my mind because you guys have like 2.7 million people incarcerated. Yeah. Canada has 40,000. So, like, how on earth you can take Wait, is statistics? That, is that from, it? Really? Yeah. Only there's only, yeah. And that's split between provincial and federal. So, I believe it's 38,000. Um, there's about 6,000 women in provincial, and there's about 700 women in federal, and then the rest are men. So, I think it's kind of like, um, I don't know, like 20,000 or something, or a little under that are men. Um, we don't have a lot of people incarcerated in Canada, nothing like the United States. And we're not private. Like we, we're not any, we don't, it's not anything like the States. So the fact that they took those statistics, knowing that the United States is so different kind of blows my mind. Um, because so right around when that policy for the transfers was put out, CSC said they had like 60 prisoners with gender considerations 12 would be trans men so you know there's like not very many and you're going to change this whole policy to now include you know anybody so there's now it's doubled because all these men are getting a free pass they just have to identify as being a woman but anyways we based all of this on statistics about rape and United States prisons, which is not anything like the rapes that are going on in Canada. I'm not saying that we're so much better, but it doesn't happen to the extent that it happens in the prison because you're privatized. Nobody gives a shit there because it's, it's a prison industry. They're just in it to make money. 
Right. Yeah. It, that man, I did not know that there were so little prisoners in Canada and, and it definitely highlights the huge problem with our system here in the United States. That's insane. I would be scared to go to prison in the United States. I do not want to go to prison there. (laughs) You guys are nuts. (laughs) There's a lot of great things about our country. And then there's a lot of really horrible, contradictory, hypocritical things about our country. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do? So we do this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is what we do. Uh, So what do you guys, I mean, besides the protests and lobbying, what do you see as potential solutions to address the issue? We mentioned a couple already. Yeah. So every area is different. We have teams split up to take on each area. Um, A lot of the women are really focused on the transing of children right now because they all have children and um, all the material that's in the school. So quite a few of them work on that. And then I run the prison side. So my objective is to raise more awareness because I tried um, lobbying with the MPs and politicians and they're going to do whatever gets them a paycheck, right? I don't have the money to make them change their mind, but if I can piss off enough of the people in their ridings to get them to be on them about this and they find out, oh no, you know, my riding is really mad at me, then that's going to push them to, you know, say something because now their job's in jeopardy, right? So that's my goal. So like, doing protests, um, doing interviews. Uh, I wanna do a couple more things. We've been doing like pop-ups. I'm really just trying to raise awareness right now. Have Um, you thought of uh, starting your own podcast, maybe your own show in which maybe you interview women and, you know, kind of let them tell their, their stories? I did think about it actually. My friend is, um, this is actually another interesting point. Um, My friend is Canada's only female dangerous offender. Now, if you look up the stats, you'll see there are other female dangerous offenders. They're not female, they're male. Um, Anyway, she's out on parole in the community. She's in BC. Um, And we thought about doing a YouTube channel together. Um, I think that would be really cool talking about all the all the different issues with women's prisons because this whole trans stuff is really taking my time away from the other issues that are happening in prison like with all the strip searching and um uh, putting people with mental health in segregation and then on top of that with all these stupid ridiculous mandates and restrictions um trying to fight those because what they're doing is um when you're admitted into provincial, they're putting you in two, two weeks isolation for COVID. So it's not isolation, it's segregation. So when you're coming in off the street, you're usually withdrawing off of drugs. And then they're putting them for two weeks in isolation. And actually what had happened was, so August 2020, my son's father got arrested Uh, He got caught with $126,000 worth of drugs. He was looking at a lot of time and um, it it wouldn't be his first prison sentence. Um, And he hung himself. He killed himself. And then um, four months later, my friend from public school, isolation cell, hung himself, same jail. And 
to this day, they're still doing the two weeks of isolation, which is crazy. Give them a COVID test. Do not put them in segregation. And then when they're transferring them to federal, they're again putting them two weeks of isolation. So my friend just got a suspension. So she's a parolee. She fucked up, relapsed, and they sent her back. She had to do dry cell, segregation, isolation, and provincial. They let her on compound for not even a week, and then they transferred her to federal. They put her in for two weeks, and then one of the women that she was in isolation with tested positive for COVID. They moved her and started her two weeks over again. So now they're just using segregation and putting people in there, but it's not technically segregation, so they're allowed to do it. And it's really screwing with people's mental health. So there are a lot of issues, like how I said I used to speak about the strip searching. I've been strip searched like 500 times. So I, um, I got a job doing the men's laundry and I had to pass um, head of security, had to approve me. And then I had to get character references from guards in order to do this job. And I worked Monday to Friday and they would take me off range and they would strip search me. Then they would put me on the boss chair. Then they would make me walk through the metal detector. I'd go to work and then they would strip search me on my way back. So they're overusing the strip searching and it's actually like a power and control dynamic. And it's really like, especially with women. So when we're on our periods, we have to like remove our tampon and we have to squat and cough. And like, we have to hope we don't get blood on the floor because if we do, they're going to embarrass us and make us swipe it up. And so dehumanizing. It's extremely dehumanizing. And there is zero reason that I need to be strip searched that many times. Like, how can I pass all of these things and use all these other security things like the boss chair the x-ray machine the metal detector and you still need to strip search me no you don't this is about power and then they also make like dehumanizing comments about your body because they feed you like thirty-five thousand calories a day and you gain weight so then they make fun of you because you've gained weight so there there's a lot of issues going on in the prisons that i want to tackle but my time's being taken away from that because i have to deal with this added issue now when you say segregation, Heather, do you mean like like solitary confinement or what is what is that process like? What's that look like? Yeah, solitary confinement and segregation are the same thing. So you're in a cement cell, um, metal toilet. Um, you'll be lucky if you get a metal bed. Sometimes there's like no bed, so you have a mattress on the floor. I have spent time in segregation before. Um, it's hell um it definitely does the number on your mental health and a lot of people are never the same when they get out of there like there's like psychosis and you start talking to yourself because there's nobody else to talk to you don't get exercise you don't see the sun yeah we're social creatures you know that that stuff's incredibly important to us well it's we've always we've recognized that you know isolation like that is a form of torture yeah and they're they they use it they use it a lot it they've done it to uh you know people here in the united states for example like one of the things that's a big issue with the january 6 protesters is that they've been putting a lot of them in solitary confinement and let's just like it is in Canada, they use the COVID sort of excuse in order to justify keeping people separate in a way. 
Uh, and it, it does drive people crazy. Yeah. There was one guy I read about not too long ago who was in and they've been holding them without trial for a long time. They were using that as a sort of coercion in order to get them to plea because if they would plea, then they would, you know, let them out early, uh, you know, and give them like time served. But there are a lot of them that are trying to be a little strong, a little pigheaded about it. And they don't, you know, they want their trial. They want their day in court as is their right. And uh, in the United States, we have the right to a speedy trial. This one guy was being held for uh, over a year. They kept pushing his date back. You know, if they would push it back a month and they would push it back another month. And he ended up, you know, committing suicide because the the strain of being isolated like that was just too much. And, and he snapped. And now I'm just thinking about what they did to us as a society as a whole. And granted, it's not the same as like, true solitary confinement people still had cell phones and, and zoom and things like that but you know what about the folks who like didn't have anyone to talk to and, and only only saw people when they left their house and then as a whole we just locked all these folks into their homes and ah well you know it's for the greater good we're not we're not going to do any you know cost what is it cost benefit analysis about what these policies could do to our society and, and our mental health. Right. The whole I, the whole thing is that, oh, if it saves just one life, but then they don't talk about how many it costs. Yes. Well, exactly. And I actually, I'm a peer researcher on a project. So I'm assessing mental health, substance abuse, and service disruptions for people released from custody during the pandemic. So I did uh, qualitative interviews in the summer. And now I'm doing the data analysis part. And it's just so heartbreaking. Like they completely shut down all services for mental health and substance abuse for like six to eight weeks because they were waiting for the government to one, tell them what category they fell under, right? Like, where do we fit? Do we have to close? Do we have to separate? Like, because a lot of the mental health and substance abuse programming is doesn't fit in a nice little box, right? Um, so there was a lot of programs that still aren't up and running. So drop-ins, um, they're just gone, right? And then moving to Zoom. Well, that's great for people who are privileged, right? You have a safe place, you have Wi-Fi, you have technology to be able to do that. Well, most of the clients and people released from custody don't have a safe place, don't have Wi-Fi, don't have technology. So then your marginalized communities like Indigenous people, well, a lot of them live in poverty. So now they are, um, they don't get programming, right? So yeah, it's great. We have Zoom. We can do this. But they're forgetting about the people that aren't privileged like us, that don't have these things. It's crazy. Like it, the people pushing these policies are the ones who claim to, to care about these marginalized groups. When, when you look at everything now that has happened, these policies hurt marginalized groups more than anyone. Um, one of the things we talked about on the show before is the mandates in, in New York City. I think it was something like 60%, right, of Black um, New York City residents were not yep. vaccinated um they were being segregated from society there so it's like here are the people pushing these policies saying oh we care about marginalized groups black lives matter all this stuff passing policies that were actually harming minority groups more well yeah 
And uh, um, that's happening here too. So they've dropped the vaccine passports for like restaurants and stuff in all the provinces but BC. We still have um, federal passports for like train, uh, plane and boat, right? And border crossing. But um, indigenous communities have a low vaccine uptake, like uptake, right? So they're like, okay, well, you can keep the passport if you want it or not. So then I'm sitting here thinking, okay, we just had this trucker convoy and half of Canada wants me to believe that those millions of people were all racist and white supremacists. So then that means we have a massive race of racism problem in Canada and we have these marginalized racialized groups that don't have their vaccine so they don't have a vaccine passport and then you're telling people they can continue using the passport so tell me how this passport isn't being used as a weapon for racism it's, it's so hypocritical it doesn't make any yeah. sense it makes no sense it, it, it doesn't make any sense like the only people that are being like that are being impacted like big time are homeless, drug addicts, blacks, indigenous, immigrants, you know what I mean? Like the, the people that we're supposed to care about and protect. Yeah, I, I'm still convinced. And yeah, it sounds conspiratorial, but I think from on high, I think the people who push these policies, I think the point was to kill as much people as possible. Call me crazy, but you're not crazy because look at the overdose epidemic that's happening in some places more people have died of overdoses than covid like bc yeah. double covid deaths right they know it's happening they know it got worse they know their restrictions increased it then the government went and gave everyone two thousand dollars a month for how long without any type of stipulation or you know um all these addicts falsely went and got the CERB money and now had $2,000, went and bought a bunch of dope and then overdosed and died. Like some of these, some of these interviews that I'm reading, they're like, yeah, we lost 16 clients. One organization lost 16 clients. Like I've lost 25 to 30 people that I know. That's so it is, they want all these less than pieces of shit that no one cares about to die off. Yeah, they don't Klaus, care about us. Klaus Schwab and all his all his homies. I, I also think about uh, you know, when they when they closed, when they stopped um taking regular patients, right? Because they wanted to keep the beds open for, for the influx of COVID people. All the folks who had illnesses that went undiagnosed for months, you know, how many deaths happened from that? Uh, my father, for example, during the lockdowns had a tumor growing in his neck. Um, which he could not get looked at until June 2020. So for months, it was just growing and growing and growing. And by the time he had it looked at, I mean, the doctor told him straight up, if you would have come just a little bit later, you'd probably be dead right now. How many people did not make it on time and get their illness diagnosed and, you know, in time to treat it and ended up dying because of these policies? It's crazy. Yeah. And even the suicides, like, um suicide and suicide attempts have risen like 51 percent in young girls and that's not surprising like you're locking them at home 
probably in an abusive situation. You're taking them away from all their friends. You're not letting them go to school. You're not letting them participate in sports. And like they literally went and filled the skateboard park with sand so that nobody could use it. And then they um, took down the basketball nets and disassembled the parks. And, you know, like, it's like, what? It's sick. (laughs) As someone who's worked in, in an inner city school system, I can tell you that as much as all the kids would say, oh, I hate school. It's like prison. And it's kind of like prison. And the system does suck. For a lot of them, that was seven hours a day. They were able to escape a worse situation that some of these kids were dealing with at home. And then what we did by closing everything was we confined them to that. And they're also- they also have food security. Like yeah. it's not something that they don't, you know, the schools were providing one to two meals a day for a lot of these kids, especially, you know, kids that are on the poor end of the spectrum in inner cities. In some places they were, they were still doing that. Like I know in Elizabeth, where I'm from, they did have programs that they kept available during, right at the beginning of the lockdowns when they closed schools and all that, where parents uh, who could not meet, you know, their food needs were able to go to certain food banks and, and pick up. Right, but it's still kids. it's still an extra obstacle, right? Because then yeah. instead of the kid just going to school and being there and having access, now they had to have to arrange, you know, for some sort of transportation. That's not because yep. the buses aren't running, making it a lot more complicated. Yeah, it's very yes. it's a big problem, and I don't know, I don't know what to do about it other than talk about it, other than try to be honest about it, to have these conversations, uh, to bring attention to the issue. Because it just seems like so many people are sort of just like caught up in whatever the propaganda of the day is, and it changes. And now we're seeing that, you know, as, as a lot of the details about, you know, the, the collapse of the, the COVID narrative, as I call it, uh, is ongoing, um, we are seeing more of the, the switch. And now everybody's talking about Ukraine, and it's all about Ukraine and Russia. And yeah, well. Meanwhile, all these issues are still there. It's not like they magically went away, like, and it just blows my mind that I think, you know, I think people are realizing it and some of them are waking up, but I think a lot of them are now experiencing shame. And personally, I think they should. (laughs) I think, you know, anyone who advocated for these policies and just complied and went along with it, you should, I think, feel a level of shame. Um, But I think that's why so many can't just admit it just admit it. Like we were wrong. We went along with this. Maybe you were scared or maybe you truly believed in it, but it was wrong and it was detrimental. It caused more damage. It took a bad situation, you know, dealing with the virus and it made it substantially worse than it had to be. Um, It would probably have been preferable to do nothing. Well, to take care they should have taken care of the elderly. So yes. what what really pisses Focus. me off Focus whenever yeah. yes. the most when people call them, so we call them restrictions. And I saw someone say, well, no, they were protections. No, they were not protections because we literally left our elderly in the long care home to die of neglect. We are locking them in their rooms to eat by themselves with a TV tray. They're dying of a broken heart. They're being treated worse than prisoners. They're begging to shower. So please tell me how those are protections. They are not protections. We should have protected our 
vulnerable and let the rest of society go on the way they should. And that was was what all the scientists, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, A lot of doctors and scientists very early on formed that organization and were signing the Great Barrington Declaration. And that was their their whole proposal is to take a a focused type of um, approach to the virus where you focus on the, the most vulnerable, you know, and those are the people that we try to protect and then let the rest of society operate normally to mitigate the other damage. That's not what they did, you know, and today, Brett and I just saw a video. Um, I don't know what the doctor's name was, but he was, um, I'm going to pull it up right now, but he was talking to members of the Great Barrington Declaration, and he basically admitted to them, uh, Dr. Joseph F- Freeman, he admitted to them that they were correct. He said, personally, I would like to apologize to the three other scientists sitting with me here on Zoom, the proponents of the Great Barrington Declaration. I'm sorry, because I believe now you guys were correct and you were correct from the beginning, he says. You know what this all is, though? It was, um, so the issue with society is now there's an addiction to fear and they just cannot admit that they're powerless over it. Yes. And then the other issue is that this was the largest wealth transfer to ever happen. This is all about money and it has been since the beginning. And the reason they were pushing the vaccines so much is because they went and bought all of them and spent all of this money. And now we're in so much debt because they sat there and gave out all of this money. And there's a whole bunch of money that is unaccounted for, like $600 million. Where is it? Don't know. And these CERB checks, there were millions of them sent to people outside of Canada what (laughs) so like this whole thing has been all about money 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 and crime against humanity is what I say you know that that's what we lived through over the last two years crimes against humanity on a scale that we've never seen before you know I think we're overdue for like a new Nuremberg type trials like I don't know if that'll ever happen in our lifetime, but who's going to be held accountable for this shit? You know, I have a feeling that most of these people are going to get away with it. And look at Pfizer. They wanted to bury the data for 75 years. Bury that data they tried. Why? Why do you want to hide that data for 75 years? And then it gets released and we have eight pages of side effects from adverse events. Eight pages. It's evil. The whole thing has just been crazy. Um, I'm a very, um, I'm an observant person. I always sit back and I watch. I watch everything and I see what happens. And so at the beginning, I was like, well, you know, I'll let the vulnerable and the immune compromised that get their vax and, you know, and I'll just kind of see what happens and then I'll get mine. And then next thing you know, the government's like, you need to do it or you can't do this. Well, one, don't tell me what to do, because if you tell me what to do, I'm going to do the opposite. Do not (laughs) tell me what to do. So once they started saying, well, I'm going to take this way and not let you do this. I'm like, fuck yeah, I'm not getting vaxxed. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make me get vaxxed. If I die of COVID, I don't care because I didn't listen to you. (laughs) Like, just like, so yeah, I I got kicked out of, yeah, I got kicked out of school, everything. Like I was in uh, college for my paralegal diploma and they're like, nope, you need to be vaxxed. And I'm like, I'm not getting vaxxed. So I got kicked out of school not allowed to fly. I can't leave my country. 
um, I wasn't allowed to eat in restaurants forever. And I'm like, I really don't care. Cause like I've been in prison before and I know how to live without all of these things. Um, and also the whole, like, nobody's going to shame me because like, I was a drug addict and lost everyone and was shamed and called a million different names and treated like scum on the bottom of a shoe my entire life. So there's nothing that you can say or do to me that's going to make me care. So it's so, almost, you know, it sounds, I guess, kind of terrible in a way, but it's almost like a silver lining to the things that you went through. Um, and that the fact that you pulled yourself out of it, it gave you that perspicacity. It gave you that strength to say no and be like, well, there's nothing you guys can take from me. I've already been at rock bottom. I know what rock bottom is like. So go ahead and take everything from me. You're not going to silence me and you're not going to make me comply. Yeah. And I've, I don't even know if I've had COVID. If I did, I didn't know about it. I went and got like the blood work and they said that it showed no immunity, but it's like the day after they called the pandemic, I literally hopped on a plane and flew to BC for a month. And then I've been to like 25 or more protests. I've been, I've been on a plane six times. How, I, how are you not dead? <laughs> and I went to two concerts with over 5,000 people and I haven't stopped hugging people. I hug people all the time. Same. We, we haven't been wearing a mask. We've traveled. We haven't been on a plane, but Brent went on a plane once. We traveled to multiple different states. Um, we were in D.C. on Jan 6, and you know how Trump supporters are with masks. You know, we were there recording and talking to people. Hardly anyone wore, wore a mask. A couple of them had some MAGA masks on and stuff, but shoulder to shoulder in crowds, you know, how are all those Trump supporters not sick, you know, after that event, I didn't hear any stories about an, a spike in cases after that event, nothing, all they did was like insurrection, insurrection, but they didn't tell us anything about people dropping dead from being there, kind of makes you wonder, right, it's like, we've well, been, the same thing we've with, been with friends, we've saw family, we didn't stop hugging people, you know, I was hugging my grandma, she's 81, still alive, yeah. Well, they made it seem like it was a lot worse than what it is. And if you are healthy and you're young, you're probably going to be fine. Less than 1% die of COVID. Not everyone's going to end up in the hospital. If you don't have other health problems, you're probably going to be fine. Does it suck? Yeah, it sucks. But there are so many different sicknesses that really suck. Yeah. Um, and nobody has the right to not be sick yeah. there is no right that says that you aren't allowed to be sick or well, someone's not allowed they'll to say, be uh, sick. they'll say you don't have a right to get other people sick and that you're you know you're infringing on their rights by not following these policies but the other thing is their policies don't work they don't work if none they, of them yeah. the the social distancing was totally based on an arbitrary number they made that up the injections which were sold to us as safe and effective shortly thereafter you know now we know that they don't stop the spread of the disease and that they carry the risk of potential you know life-ending or life-altering side effects the people that have been suffering from those side effects are being ignored it's just the whole thing from top to bottom has been a disaster and it's like you know a lot of the 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 social media companies were involved you know they were censoring people very early on um, oh yeah as far as i'm concerned like facebook twitter like these companies they're all complicit 
in crimes against humanity. They are all partly responsible for this, for covering the information up, for censoring people trying to tell their stories of what was happening to them. And, you know, I think, <laughs> I think history is going to look back at, at these companies and they're not going to be looked at as platforms of open discourse. And it's sad because that's kind of what they were at first. And like the story of Facebook and the story of YouTube and the story of, of Twitter is going to be these once innovative great platforms that opened up discourse around the world that became government arms of, of censorship and manipulation and controlling information. That is going to be the story of those corporations. Well, it is. And I'm waiting for when it comes out, how much all of these people have been paid to push the political narrative and to sell the vaccines to the community or to society. Everyone's been paid. You wait, it will come out. And, you know, when at, at the very first, when all of this happened, I was scared. You know, I was like, oh, shit. You know, I was watching like Italy and just, I was scared, right? But then the Black Lives Matter happened, and I'm like, well, why aren't they all dead? <laughs> you know, and that like was, other things. And that was a red pill for a lot of people, actually. I mean, Brett and I were already skeptical, and we already realized they were exaggerating the danger, and we already were saying, well, these lockdowns are gonna make shit worse the more they drag on. We were already saying that, but as soon as those protests started happening, that was like the veil lifting for a lot of other people when they were like, yeah. all right, clearly this is not what they're telling us. If they're saying, well, it's not, okay, it's not okay to protest the lockdowns and, and the restrictions, but it is okay to protest and gather for this cause. Um, clearly, I guess the virus isn't as dangerous as you guys were saying, if you're allowing this now. And a lot of folks that I knew personally who were maybe not on board at first with the things I was saying, did change after that and they were like all right damn you you were correct clearly there's there's something fishy going on here with these double standards yep and even with this whole ottawa convoy thing they were down there for three weeks we were hugging laughing singing dancing drinking smoking you know yep. there were no social distancing or masks and the cases didn't rise why they should all be dead. What didn't Biden say this would be the winter of death? Still waiting for it. I'm like, I'm still alive. And and look, and, and to people who who have folks, you know, in their lives who did get the virus, and, and I'm sure some of them got seriously sick, and I know some of them probably died. You know, we feel for you, and, and that's terrible. But you got to acknowledge that for the most part, most people did not have that experience that you had. Most people you talk to will probably tell you. They don't know anyone who died from this. That's been the case for me. Most people I talk to, they know people who got sick. They don't really know anyone who died from this. Yeah. And like, it's, it's, we know, you know, that's, it's with everything. Not everyone gets cancer, yeah. but they do, they die. Not everyone gets pneumonia. They do, they die. Not everyone gets the flu. They do, they die. You know, like every, anything can kill you. Like smoking cigarettes, yeah. not everyone dies from it. Like we have to learn how to deal with things and mitigate our own risk. So what was really fishy from the beginning was the fact that nobody was talking about the fact that if you're obese, your risk of dying of COVID escalates through the roof. Why are we not discussing that? Mm -hmm. We have a society that is so freaking fat 
you know, from the fast food and the processed food and not exercising. And then not talking about taking vitamins, not talking about taking vitamin D or, you know, banning exercise. So we're banning all the things that are going to make us healthy and going to keep us safe. Not just people need to mitigate. Not just not talking about it. People were getting banned for talking about that stuff. Brent put a tweet out um, last year about end of February of 2020, actually. It was quite early on. And one of the things that was coming out was that the people that were dying had deficient or undetectable levels of vitamin D in their blood. And it was something, it was a ridiculous number. It was like 96 to 98% of the people that, that had passed at that point all had this problem. And it was not so much that the you know, the, the, we had an epidemic of, of a virus. It was that we had an epidemic of people who were just having utterly low levels of vitamin D, which is a, a natural, it's, it's, all, it's a hormone and it's necessary for the functioning of so many different things in the body, not just the immune system. And where do you get it primarily from, Brent? Sunshine. Yeah. So how does it make sense to tell everyone to stay indoors and to lock themselves inside to not get sunshine? It, exactly. Almost, like I said, it almost seems like the point was to increase the amount of deaths to make, to make it so as many people as possible get the sickness and die from it. You know, you mentioned overweight. That's that's just one of the comorbidities. You know, most people who actually died from the virus did not die directly from the virus. A lot of them were already sick and had other illnesses. Yep. But we have. And, go ahead. Oh, also, another thing too is like. I do not trust the government. I don't trust them. I can't trust them. And I never will be able to trust them because I can't get past all the things that have happened to me personally and all the things that they have done in the past. I'm a big nut for history. I like history. The only thing I trust is history. That is it because it's happened and I know it's happened. Right. So, um, and even that's not so clear cut too. I mean, when you, I know, when you delve really deeply into history, you'll find that actually a, a lot of it is not as uh, accurate as, as we were told. And, you know, which is why we have fields of study like historiography, which is the study of how to study history, because it can be rather complex, you know, and don't, obviously don't get yeah, it. With yeah. But, you know, like the powerful. I'm thinking like um, control what we remember as history sometimes is what I mean. Yes. So, but she yes. had, had a point. Um, I'm thinking so like the residential schools or, um, oh, this is a good one. Dope sick. Have you guys watched it or read it? No. The big cover up with the FDA and Purdue Pharma and how OxyContin wasn't so addictive and it was good and keep increasing it. And we're going to pay our doctors money to prescribe it. They caused that overdose epidemic. And they got away with it for years and years. And the FDA covered it up, gave them this label. I don't even know how they got the label and the permission to get it out. But it was a huge, huge, and it's still going on. Um, But like just looking at things like that and like with like the residential schools um, or the babies, um, I can't remember what it's, I always say Yes, I can never pronounce it proper, but they're literally still fighting our government for money. So what the government's doing is saying, well, we need your medical records and you need to prove this. Well, you know what they did was they didn't prescribe the medication to mothers. They gave it to them as a sample. So it wasn't 
there wasn't a prescription. And now you're asking people to go back to the 1950s when record keeping wasn't very good and to prove that their mother took it. You can see by looking at this person that clearly their mother took the medication. Give them the money. Why do they need to fight the government? And this was pulled off the market in November. Canada continued to give it to women until March, six months after knowing the outcome of this. And look at who developed that drug, the freaking Nazi guy. Like it just, all of these things, I don't trust the government. The government does not have our best interests at heart well, and they the will reasons, never. Yeah, one of the reasons we had such a low uptake of you know injections here in the United States was because the African-American community was treated like guinea pigs and the most popular and most well-known is the Tuskegee experiment where they enrolled men in a, you know, they said that they were treating them for, you know, like syphilis or what they, they called bad blood back then, but they were actually giving them syphilis in some cases, and then letting the disease progress so that they could monitor it without treatment, without anything, just, you know, blaming, saying that they were unresponsive or whatever, the entire, and this didn't come out until years and years later. So it's like, how can anybody just, you know, quote unquote, trust the science when the science is, is this monolith represented by government and money-making and it just, it stinks to high heaven and anybody with two firing neurons and an ounce of common sense can, you know, see that there's something wrong here and that you can't just take what these people say without, you know, critically analyzing it. There are, there are people who also like treat scientists almost like they're superhuman too. Like they worship them. Like they're incapable of being bribed. They're incapable of being threatened to do something. They're incapable of being greedy and paid to take a a certain position. It's like, they are just as susceptible to that stuff as any politician is. Yes, they are. And like the government still continues to do stuff. So the Senate just put out a report like two years ago. Um, So what our government has been doing has been um, actually sterilizing Indigenous women to prevent them from having children. And they are probably still doing it. Like it wouldn't surprise me, but there are so many things throughout history. And it just blows my mind how anyone can sit back and one, believe, follow the science or trust the science. Okay, guys, but do you remember that these are the same people that tell you that men are women, women are men, vaginas (laughs) are penises and penises are vagina, and you want me to follow their science now? Yeah, then then you got, you know, people like Bill Gates, who aren't even doctors, they're on the record saying they believe the world is overpopulated and that they, they want to, that he wants to slow down the population growth. He hasn't said he wanted to reduce the population, that's a misconception, but he has said that we need to do things to slow the population growth. And then you're taking medical advice from someone like that? Yep. So isn't exactly a prime <laughs> specimen as Joe Rogan recently. Yeah, he's got man boobs and stick arms. Like he said, like you're taking health advice from someone like that. Why? It it makes no freaking sense. It's like, like I said, he's on the record saying he thinks there's too many people. Why would you think someone like that is going to be uh, giving you advice that's going to make you healthier so more people will survive? It makes no damn sense. Well, you know what it is, is it's just like religion. So you know how people say that people use religion as a security blanket. So like, oh, you know, I'll go to heaven. Everything will be great. I have, you know, God, he'll protect me. He'll look out for me. Like um, this is their security blanket. 
They need someone to be able to save them. They need someone to say, you're going to be okay. Don't worry. I got it because people are fucking lazy. They don't want to do anything for themselves. They don't want to put their neck out. They want to be told what to do because it's easier to just do as you're told and follow. That's why we have so many followers and not very many leaders. And I'm not a follower. I just cannot get on board with something when I have so many questions that are not being answered. My questions need to be answered for me to get on board with something. And if things don't make sense, I can't do it. And things don't make sense. I think they're scared of the truth. And I'm thinking of a, a, a quote by one of my favorite authors, Philip K. Dick. But uh, he once said, uh, truth denied comes back to haunt. So the, the people who put their trust in, in these folks to just make the decisions for them because they don't want to know the truth and they don't want to think about it. They don't want to do the work. It's like that reality is going to come to hit you at some point. You can keep denying it and you can keep pretending it's not there and that these people care about us. But in the end, it, it's going to hurt you. Yeah, it, it is. I, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I just don't get how so many people, and, and I see it with like my own family and friends. It's because they just don't want to fight. They don't want to, you know, they, they just don't want to do it. They don't want to fight. They don't want the chaos. They don't, they just want to listen and everything's just going to be perfect and normal. And, and that's another thing too, is all these people are like bound and determined. No, no, no. If we vaccinate everybody, then we'll go back to normal. It's because not everyone's vaccinated. And it's like, no, this mutates rapidly like you cannot eradicate a coronavirus because it jumps from humans and animals and it mutates quickly. So by the time you get everyone vaccinated, we're on to the next variant. Are you going to vaccinate all the animals in the planet? Are you going to do what China did and just lock everyone in metal boxes? No, we still have it. You're not going to get COVID zero. And they seem to so I have a friend actually who he didn't realize that I was unvaccinated and he came and picked me up and we went for coffee and um, we were going to go to the mall. And um, he was going on about how people who aren't vaccinated should be denied health care and he doesn't care if they die and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, we should deny health care to addicts as well. I'm like, because... Um, they're, they're overdosing and dying and they're taking all our ambulances, all our emergency, they're filling up our ICUs, we're spending a fortune on all these addicts and they made the choice so that's their consequence and he's an addict, right? So he was so upset that I could possibly say that. I'm like, well, it's not really different because the addicts are leaving their needles in the park and little kids are getting stabbed with it and getting HIV. So that's infectious, you know? Um, and he was angry. And then he goes to pull into this place. And I'm like, well, I can't eat in there. And uh, he's like, why? I'm like, because I'm on vax and I deserve to die. So I get to eat outside with the animals. And he looked at me and needless to say, we haven't hung out again. But like, I will never be able to respect him again. Like, who the fuck do you think you are? Yep. And he, he's mad because he wants things to go back to normal. And he thinks that if everyone gets vaccinated, it's just going to go back to normal. Absolutely. It's not going to go back to normal. It's, and like, it's, it's complying is why we're not back to normal. They go, oh, well, it's just, just, it's just a mask. It's just this. And the more you give an inch, they're going to take a mile. And that's why we've not gone. 
gone back to normal. It's, it's, yeah. it's sad, you know, and I do feel bad for those, for some of these people. And I, and I think they've been kind of broken psychologically, but it, it is going to be really hard to ever trust certain people again after the last two years. And, you know, people I know in my personal life who I saw advocating for, for this stuff. And it's just like, wow, you're totally fine to see me lose everything and to see me segregated from society and treated like a second-class citizen and in, in, in places in my own country. And how can I ever trust you again? How can I ever look at you as, as well, a friend? You know? We have we have wandered quite far from <laughs> sex and gender yeah, well, and, and women's prisons. Well, I think these things do tie into each other, you know, especially with the hypocrisy and, you know, you have the, they do. a lot of the we're, folks we're, who are we're coming on 90 minutes now. Yeah. So I thought we should maybe come back to uh, women's issues <laughs> and, and see if they're... Is there any other particular points that you wanted to hit uh, here, Heather? I'm, I'm on the issues page. I see washrooms and change rooms, uh, rape and domestic violence shelters, sports competitions. Uh, the interesting thing is the uh, homosexuality, same-sex attracted women, and how women's uh, rights to have sexual boundaries is being erased by gender, gender self-identification. Uh, yes. Yeah. Any, any of those points that you want to touch on? Yeah, and I should probably disclose this. So those were my views and opinions and not Cosper's. <laughs> of course, of course. Yes, that's, that's me talking shit, not that. And, and everybody um, should, of course, talk to their doctor about what their particular medical situation is, is right for them. Yeah. That's my Tim Pool-esque disclaimer. YouTube is probably still yes. going we'll yeah, to... We might get this one pulled, who knows? We're, we're kind of small enough that we sort of fly under the radar. But I think they kept us small. That's well, that might, that's also <laughs> possible. buried on YouTube. Well, that, that, but also, you know, we're, we're like a long-form podcast and we're not any... We don't have names independent of, of this. So it's not likely that, you know, people are going to care what, you know, what we think. But... It's okay. We're still growing. We're doing good. But I wanted to come back to the sex and gender stuff uh, before we wrapped it up and just see if yes. there are points. Um, so actually, there um, before Bill C-16 was passed, the provincial, like the provinces, all passed their own gender identity or expression into their um, human rights code. So we have like the Ontario Human Rights Code, and then we have the Canadian Human Rights Code. Hmm. So Ontario is the first one to pass the gender identity and expression, and people actually coined it the bathroom bill. Um, so this passed back in 2012, and shortly after, there was a guy who went by Jessica Hambrook, and he was pretending to be a woman. Um, he now has dangerous offender status, like he is a sexual predator, hardcore, and he was going into homeless shelters, and he was sexually assaulting um, vulnerable women. So one of them was like a deaf woman, etc. And like these homeless women are being forced to share a room with these people. And they're taking advantage of it um, because they're at their victim pool, right? So we do have issues with like the homeless shelters, rape shelters, etc. Um, and also you mentioned with the, the same sex attraction. This one kind of like blows everyone's mind, really. The fact that um, lesbians are being forced to take dick. And it, it's corrective rape is what it is. Um, 
And it's not uncommon from what they were dealing with before, you know, with straight men like, oh, they just haven't had good dick, you know, Um, all those types of comments. And now it's like these men have like fetishes and kinks and, you know, autogynophilia and they're lesbians and it's a lady dick and you're transphobic if you don't take it. And a lot of the lesbians don't even have their own spaces anymore. So like apps. Um, for dating like you go through it and so I'm on um, one of the dating apps I opened it like when I was 19 and I still have it but sometimes I change it to looking for women just so I can go check and I scroll through and I'm like guy 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 like it's like you're a guy you are not a woman so what they're doing is they're forcing lesbians into having sex with them and like these women are they're scared to say no because they're going to be called transphobic or they're going to be kicked out of the LGBTQ community for not accepting her. Um, So it's a, it's a big issue with lesbians right now. Like there's the whole like cotton ceiling, boxer ceiling. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. That's just disgusting. Like, I can't even believe it's going on. I'm not familiar Um, with that. Pardon? I'm not familiar with that. What is it? Oh, so they actually, they, they had a group, like a Facebook page, and it actually got closed down, but they were documenting all these instances of, um, um, so trans men trying to force gay men into having sex with them in their vagina, and then, um, then there was the, the opposite, right? So they were documenting this. They ended up getting, like, kicked off Facebook. But yeah, there's a whole whole big thing. Even the BBC did finally did an article on it, and um, the trans community got so mad, and they were sending letters, and they wanted the BBC to remove the article because uh, that it was only a small percentage of lesbians that reported this, and that wasn't enough to say anything. And it's like, what? How many how many lesbians yeah. have to how speak many? out? Yeah. <laughs> But it's the same with prisons, right? They're like, oh, well, um, it's only a few rapes. It's not a bunch. And it's like, well, how many rapes is acceptable to you? How many abortions is acceptable to you? Like, what number are we going on? The answer should be zero. Right. The answer, even if it's one, you know, that should be enough to look into it. That should be enough to try to figure out how do we stop it from happening. Or to just to be able to discuss these things yeah. like reasonable, rational adults with having dissenting opinions. Yeah. There's this condescending, authoritarian, cyber and, and actual real life bullying attitude that comes from these activists who have this pretty they have this idea that how dare you disagree with me you know and because you disagree you're this that and the other really what they're doing is they're emotionally manipulating they're lying and they're they're using the these tactics in order to force or coerce compliance which is not in the spirit of freedom or free choice or respecting the individual rights of everyone involved they also throw temper tantrums it's like what a child does when a parent says no to them they scream and throw themselves on the floor like i don't know if you saw the footage recently from that university in texas where uh 
I think, uh, was it a father who went there to speak? Yeah, this was a father in Texas who has been going through a messy divorce with his ex-wife, and they've been having a disagreement over the trans status of their six-year-old. Well, it was six-year-old, but I guess he's nine years old now. Male child, and it's a point of contention in the divorce. And so she, mom is maintaining that the child is trans. Dad is maintaining the child is not. And it's, it's a big, messy battle. And so this father went to speak at a university in northern Texas, and all the students showed up to uh, shout down and, and protest the father from being able yeah. to speak. Banging on the desks, calling the fascists. Screaming, stomping. One of them was just shrieking, shrieking, threw herself on the ground. It's just, it reminds me of children. This is... This is not mature behavior. If you were mature and if you and if your positions were good positions and you were able to defend them, you should be able to have a discourse about this stuff. And when someone asks you, well, define a woman, define a man, have a rational response. And if you can't answer the question, say you can't answer the question. And I think that's what it is. A lot of them can't answer the question and they know they can't. It's just you need to agree with how I see myself and you need to participate in that. And if you don't, I'm going to shout you down and scream at you. I'm going to report you. I'm going to try to get you fired from your job. I'm going to dox you online. And again, we know it's not all trans people doing this. It is the radical types who are doing this, who demand, who demand yeah. people cater to them. And you brought this up earlier, but they're, they're such a small percentage. And we're literally changing the, the fabric structure, of, structure society. of society to cater to a very very small minority of people you know and i understand they'll say oh well that that's what puts them at so in danger and all this stuff because they're such a minority sure we can address all that stuff though without having to implement these policies that are so drastic i find that a lot of them are um like i'm really concerned with society because there's a lot of really unhinged mentally unstable fragile people and we're allowing these people to dictate policy and society and that's really scary like and I did I watched that video from Texas and I was just like how can you not be embarrassed with yourself like yeah. you, your behavior is absolutely disgusting and like I wouldn't let my child act like that if I went out in public and my kid even did half of that it would be like football out the door like absolutely not like I, I'm really concerned um it's it's this what are they generation x is it so it's all the groups because people always blame the millennials but I'm a millennial it's not us older millennials it's the ones that are born with social media social media has destroyed society like they there's no critical thinking um there there's no focus so they're completely distracted um they can't think outside the box they're entitled they're so entitled it's unbelievable how entitled they feel um, and it's also like, you can tell that there's a really big difference between the way I was raised and the way that they're raised because of the way that society changed and grew, et cetera. Like if I were to talk to my parents, the way that these people talk to people, I would have been choked out. <laughs> like you would be going uh, to my funeral. At you. Same. Yeah. I would have been beaten with a belt. I wanted to, uh, right? I wanted to read this quote by Thomas Saul, which I think is relevant to this, but he said, 
historians of the future will have a hard time figuring out how so many organized groups of strident jackasses succeeded in leading us around by the nose and morally intimidating the majority into silence. Yeah, it is. It's all about, and then this big suicide thing, right? So their big thing is like 40% commit suicide or whatever their number is. But where are all the dead trans kids? Can anyone point them out to me? Where are these massive amounts of trans kids who were not allowed to trans who are now dead? Because that's their big thing, right? With trans and kids, that they're all going to commit suicide if we don't let them trans. But where are they, right? Um, I'm, sure there really are, been- I'm sure there are a couple, but also if there's a, if, you know, if there is a massive amount of this stuff happening, Shouldn't it be getting less? Shouldn't there well, be there was less of those things if these treatments are now being the, rolled out in mass? The foremost expert in gender dysphoria in children was Dr. Kenneth Sucker, and he was based in the gender clinic in, outside of Toronto. And when the rationale came to change, the, the previous rationale for children with gender dysphoria was called watchful waiting. And this meant that, you know, in his experience, most children who experienced dysphoric symptoms, they would resolve on their own. And it was a consequence of, you know, just going through the sort of the normal thing of puberty, or they had a sort of, you know, traumatic past that was unrevealed, that was being, you know, sort of missed over and that they required therapy to address the trauma. And what had happened is that they changed that that rationale of watchful waiting to automatic gender affirmation, 100%. Affirm, affirm, affirm. Affirm, affirm, affirm. And escorting these children through medicalization, you know, whether that includes, you know, in some cases it's, they call them puberty blockers, but there's basically chemical castration. And these mm-hmm. are, and they also lie about them. So they say, that, you know, oh, it's completely reversible. No, it is not. When you put a child on puberty blockers for a period of longer than it's like, I think eight or 12 months, it can, it, it's very likely that it will permanently alter their genital development sterilize and, them. and sterilize them. They won't be able to have kids which is, you know, a huge factor, it, you know, and somebody may think that they don't want kids when they're in their teens or their twenties even, but you know, when you get, the older you get, you're, that biological clock kicks yeah. in and you decide maybe you do want kids. Going, and, going through it right now. <laughs> you're, taking, you're taking those choices away yeah. from children who, who couldn't even consent to sex, let alone, you know, sexual surgeries yeah. and all kinds of nonsense. And it's a big, it's, it just blows my mind. And that doctor kind of sucker, he was forced out of his position at the, the, the gender clinic. And then years later, he went through an extensive lawsuit with them. He ended up winning and getting a substantial settlement because of the way that they had mistreated him. And, and he had been, you know, by the numbers and, and he was showing that, you know, most of the kids, it was something like 80 some percent of the kids that had these symptoms, they would resolve on their own and they did not need to go through some sort of medicalized process of transition. Which is why we're seeing now. And they turned out to be homosexual, which yeah. is interesting because now it's like almost like they're putting these kids through conversion therapy. Yep, in a way. And now we're seeing, you know, a large amount of uh, detransitioners or enough of them to know that these people are out there. But the radical types in the LGBT movement don't want to acknowledge the existence of people. They're like a myth. They're just not there, it just doesn't happen. And if it does, you were never really trans to begin with. 
And yeah, maybe that's true. They weren't ever really trans to begin with, which is why we shouldn't have affirmed, 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 and maybe gave them a little more time to figure it out so they didn't end up doing something reversible to themselves. Like, uh, I don't know if you know Laura Becker, should follow her on uh, Twitter. She goes by D Tranny. We had her on the show and go watch that episode and listen to her story. You know, yeah. there she are trauma multiple stories like that out there. They do not want to talk about those people. Their trauma doesn't matter. What they went through doesn't yeah, like matter. Trauma, especially childhood trauma, is the epidemic. It's not that the, all these kids are genderqueer or non-binary or trans. It's that a lot of them are being traumatized either by their parents or a parent or by a family member, somebody close to them. There's a lot of what, you know, we've had Josh Slocum on the show and he talks about cluster B personality disorders. And these are your, your narcissists, your histrionics, your psychopaths, your borderlines. And they abuse people in their family and their environment and use them as objects in order to gratify themselves and their own sick, twisted psychological desires. And that I think is the epidemic. Yeah. And it's like the, it's the thing that we don't, you know, see because it's, it's easier to talk about everything else. And the people in power like to keep us divided. They like to keep us traumatized. They like to keep us distracted with all these other periphery issues. Well, and it's the new drug. So my generation, when we had trauma, we went to drugs and it, it's never been fixed. Like all of us still have our trauma. We're all still doing drugs. We're all still dying. And now the younger generation, it's transing. Yeah. It's not the drugs. Right. And like, so when I was saying about like the suicide thing that came from the pulse study, and I'm not saying that there haven't been suicides, but what they're trying to make it seem is, is if we do not transition our kids, they're all going to die. And that's not true. Yeah, and, and what they're also, doing... Sorry, but it's fucked up because what they're doing is they're also freaking these parents out. Yes. Why so many of them are going along with this because they're literally telling them, well, if you don't do this, your kid might kill themselves and die. And that's horrible to put that Well, up. what it is, is it addict behavior. Yeah. It's manipulation and emotional abuse. That's 100% what it is. And they're teaching these children to do this they're manipulating their parents. And it's no different than when I manipulated my parents to get money for drugs. They're manipulating their parents so that they can get their drug. Their drug just happens to be different than the drug that I use. It's the exact same shit. It's just a new generation and a new way of doing it. And I, I'm scared for my kids because I have a seven-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son. And then I have eight, nine nieces and nephews. And I'm scared of shit. Like, I do not want them getting caught up in this. And I know that if I were born um, later, that I would, I would be a trans man yeah. or non-binary because I do not like anything feminine, which also irks me. So when um, I ask people, well, what is a woman? And they say, someone who identifies with qualities traditionally associated with um, a females. I don't wear dresses. I don't do my nails. I wear men's clothing. I wear black. I don't do or like anything that typical women do. Like I am a man. So does that mean I'm not a woman? Like it's just, it's just all crazy. And I know I would have been trans if I were born later. And I'm glad that 
I was born in the generation that I was in because I know that I am female who just happens to like men's clothing. <laughs> so you, you mentioned your kids and you, know, you should definitely check out our episode that we put out yesterday, which was with uh, Teachers Exposed. Um, they actually got banned off Twitter because they were, you know, kind of revealing Exposing a lot of stuff, teachers. Yeah, what was going on in the classroom with this stuff. But the, the overall end message of that episode was be involved with your kids, like know, know what's happening in the school, ask them about it. And when they start to get to a certain age, you know, just make sure they know they can come to you if they start to be confused in that way. Because if they don't feel they can come to you, they are going to turn to these these ideologues they you can also you can beat them to the punch people. too yeah. you can you know you can have the sex and gender conversations yeah. and you can just you know tell them what you just told us that you know being a boy being a girl is your biological you know your biological yeah. gender and it doesn't have anything to do you can dress however you want you can wear whatever makeup you want you can you know do your hair and and kids naturally go through these phases yep. of trying on you know different kind of identities and different styles to sort of find themselves and the problem is when that normal process gets twisted or you have a teacher or teachers that sort of like, you know, they, they think the, they, they indoctrinate these kids into the, these, these queer theory ideas and suggest to them that, oh, maybe you're this, maybe you're that. We can, we can, you know, I can help you. We don't have to tell mom and dad. Like, it's just so creepy and disturbing. No, it's. But that's why we, yeah, we had a, that conversation yesterday or that went up yesterday. Yeah. Where you had Be involved. You know, that's the ultimate message we could give to parents if they are concerned about the stuff is like, make sure your kids know that they can come to you with this stuff. But and you don't have to just affirm, affirm, affirm. You can tell them and say, you know, this, this might be a phase. Maybe this is who you are. We don't really know. Maybe let's give this some time for you to work this out. It's normal for young people to, to be confused about their identity, to not be sure. And let's wait. But like you said, what's happening is like the kids are kind of demanding this of the parents in many cases and, and saying, well you, well, you have to do this to me because if you don't let me do this, then I'm, I'm going to kill myself or something like that, you know? And I think that's why we're seeing such a large increase in this. And one of the things I want to bring up too is um, I think, I don't know where the statistics come from, but the link between autism, um, specifically in girls, yep. and that they're finding that uh, the huge increase that we're finding in girls who are identifying as trans or non-binary also have uh, autism. They're on the spectrum of some sort. There was a book put out about this recently. Abigail Schreier. Yeah. That was her name. I don't remember the book. She's the name. author. She talks yeah. a lot about it. Do you remember the name? And of it? Yeah. Um no i think they temporarily removed it too from from uh amazon, amazon at some point yeah they did yeah irreversible damage that's the book yes yes i read it it was a really good book um oh. and you know another thing is um like going back how we were talking about how this whole COVID thing was money focused the same with this transing of kids it's all about money yeah. like it's a billion dollar industry and like if less than one percent of the population is trans and and that less than one percent they all don't um have surgery then you're not really going to make a whole lot of money right but like they're projecting to be like 26 billion dollar industry you know in the next five years well where are you getting your clients from 
So you need to sell this idea. And who are the perfect people to sell the idea to? Well, that's the generation of kids who are now growing up without parents because all their parents, you just let die of overdoses. So now we have an entire generation of kids that are in care, that don't have parents, that are growing up in a drug house, that are growing up with alcoholics, that have been sexually abused. You know, these kids are traumatized. Like, um, and you're selling them this idea with rainbows and unicorns telling them that all their problems are going to be solved, etc. And now they're a pharma patient for the rest of their lives. And these girls, and, you know, it's, yeah, and it's up to up to 22 corrective surgeries for females. And one of them is to prevent you from peeing out of your butt. Like they don't tell you these things, but you know what? it's a lot of money and they're going to make that money because they're selling it to our traumatized young children who do not understand the repercussions and consequences of this. And it's all about money. And mutilating them too. Yeah, there's uh, the recently just today on Twitter, I came across this little bit. It was from uh, pink news and they have this whole new Snapchat campaign called pure trans joy what's top surgery like for trans guys? And they're selling this whole idea on Snapchat, which is a primarily a platform that targets, you know, is used by children. Yep. And it's funny because all the comments are like generally very negative, but they, and then they come back with that, getting critique and saying, you know, he says stuff like, uh, you know, uh, the, he had a tweet, I lost it on here, but he was basically calling everybody that disagrees with their campaign a transphobe. And it's like, no, it's like, we're just concerned about the future. Yeah. We're concerned about the next generation. Yeah. And you're selling this fake idea that this is some magic bullet solution that will make all of their problems magically go away. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, they claim that they want to stop suicides, but what happens when people who have problems that weren't solved by transitioning are still experiencing their symptoms after it. And now they have all these new medical problems yep. on top of it. It's just yep. it's so bizarre. Yeah, and now they're permanently altered. You know, it's like, look, if, if you're an adult and you want to do that, go for it, man. If, if you've gotten to a point where you've tried all these other things and nothing has helped you resolve the dysphoria and that, go for it. The problem yep. is we're pushing this younger and younger onto people. And that, that, that is going to have serious repercussions. And we're already, we're already seeing that, you know, like I mentioned the trans people, they're out there and we're going to see more of them in the next five years. You know what I'm like concerned with too, is like, I don't know if you guys know, but they've been, um, they've been talking about this for years and years and years now, but um, the sperm count is decreasing rapidly in men. And we're going to have an issue um, I can't remember by what year, where we're not really going to have sperm. <laughs> um, and then with the whole sterilizing and mutilating our children, we're rapidly increasing that date. So like, I can't help but think of like the handmaid's tale, yeah. honestly. 
Yeah, and it goes back to whole Bill Gates and that whole coiter of people who think that the world is overpopulated, which, in my opinion, is a complete BS lie, just like so many other just, things that were told. Badly managed. We haven't even barely approached the carrying capacity of the planet, as evidenced by the population continues to grow up. You know, one of the basic things that you learn in evolution—not uh, evolutionary biology, it's uh, environmental biology—is that when you get to the carrying capacity of a system, the population naturally like starts to hit a limit. Like, and, and, and you can't go past that limit because the carrying capacity has been reached. Well, humanity has not reached the carrying capacity at all. We could probably have room for, you know, a couple billion more people here. But what it comes down to is that the, the, the people that are in charge, the people that have the most wealth and resources, they don't want a more equitable or diverse uh, or inclusive reality. They want to be on top. They want to be dictating everybody how they need to live their lives. And they want to have this sort of technocratic future where they, they can control, you know, who gets to talk online or who gets to buy meat or who gets to drive, you know, and they, it, it, it's really about control and profit. And it has nothing yep. to do with the things that they claim it does. Everything is about profit. And as soon as people realize that, we'll get a lot farther in life. Everything is about money. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Yes. Thank you so much, Heather, for joining us. Um, yes, thank any, you. Any other final thoughts you want to throw out there, wrap up, and uh, give everybody yeah. your, your contact yeah. information? I will, I'll post the link to your Twitter and to... Uh, Ka- what, what message would you like to Cosbar, leave, leave the audience too. with? <sighs> just fight for women and girls, you know? Um, just have conversations. So this is what I tell everyone. Have conversations with the people in your life. Because if you let them know what's going on with prisons or on with these other issues that we discussed tonight, then they're more likely to talk to people and then talk to people. And the more people that know, the better. Because at this point, there's a lot of people that still don't know what's going on or they don't understand the extent. Um, So have those small conversations with the people you know. Also, maybe even reach out to your MP, let them know. and yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook under Heather Mason. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for joining. Don't forget to like, subscribe. Uh, if you want to, you know, give us money, check out the donation links below. It, it does help. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, you don't make a lot of fans talking about this sort of stuff. Um, you make some, but you also make a lot of enemies. And, you know, a lot of sacrifices to do this. It's definitely a labor of love. We do it for free. We've never asked for money, but hey, people started giving us some money. So that's also you can donate to Cosbar that I'll put the the website link in the description. So if you want to help advance their cause and protecting women's rights in Canada, you can totally do that there. And we will be back again soon with another one. Stay safe. Stay sane. Bye bye.